welcome back. Hello there. How are you doing today? I am not doing amazing, but hey, we're here today. It feels like it's been a month since we've recorded. I don't know if you feel the same way. Well, it's definitely been a while, but I don't know about a whole month. Lots happened though. I agree with that. <laughs> it feels like it's just been like a really long time. I don't know. Um, well, we had our senior symposium, which is when we present our project that we've done a 20 page paper on in front of the entire school. So that Absolutely actually went disgusting. Well. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> 20 <laughs> pages? Yeah, 20 pages. It wasn't that bad. It was pretty good. Um, and now I'm doing senior involvement and I'm working at a refugee center. So that's been super good that's working really cool. with kids. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, what about um, you? Well, less than you. Uh, I got quarantined and then we oh. had April vacation. And then I got my second dosage of the vaccine. So I had to stay home till those two weeks were up where that's fully set in. So I just haven't been to school in a month. So for me, kind of nothing's been happening. That's rough. Um, I, I forgot you had a quarantine. Yeah, I, I went to work. I don't know. I called work and I was like, hey, like my results came back. I'm negative. Woohoo. I can come in and work. And they're like, nah, policy. You still have to quarantine. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, then. that's rough. That is so rough. But it's understandable. Like they don't want to spread any sort of germs or anything. Yeah. Even though I, you're negative. I get it. But like, I'm, I'm, I tested negative. I didn't have the virus. <laughs> yeah, that's annoying. I wish that they would like let you test out of a quarantine, but they never do that. So, yeah, for sure um jumping back what did you write your symposium on like 20 pages what, what what were you able to write about for that much i actually wrote about judgment and like first impression um initial judgment based on first impression and how people perceive other people and how that judgment carries until proven otherwise and how it's seen in literature and that sort of thing interesting uh, the, the how it's seen in literature like um i guess really kind of hits me because like i think of like a lot in the entertainment industry, like movies and stuff, where like they'll throw a character at you and mm-hmm. they'll, pre- they'll present them in a certain way to make you think something, but then like it'll like totally flip. They'll be like a different person entirely underneath. Exactly, and a lot of um, characters in books specifically like interpret people as somebody they're not just based on that first encounter, and then they're like flabbergasted when they're in t- an entirely different person. So you can see, you can definitely see that example in a lot of movies um i talked about pride and prejudice and Mm. this long novel called atlas shrugged there's a bunch of examples in that but yeah uh you can even see probably a lot of parallels in like real life you know like your your friends will know someone and they'll tell you about this person and like they might trash talk them they'll be like oh this person like they're this this and this and then you can meet that person and talk to them and they're like completely different than how they were told to you Um, exactly like it's so it's so weird how that impression sort of carries and how you really have to get to know a person to be able to fully judge them and you can't you can't base it off of like I talked a lot about like social media and comparison and you can't base your judgments off of some post you see on social media or some bias that's in the air you have to really base your judgments on personal experiences and that sort of thing no, 100%. Like, more times than I can count, people have told me about someone and they're like, oh, like, they're this, this, and this. And uh, I do my best now, if I haven't met someone, to give them the benefit of the doubt, even if, like, my best friend has told me they're an awful person. 
you know, I, I give them a shot to prove themselves at first. Because so many times over, like people I know have just been like, this person's not a good person. And I've gone into talking to that person with the expectation already to like not like like them or trust them. And then uh, uh, times over, people have like changed my expectations and just shown me like that's not who they are. That's just how they were described to me. And that's what like I interpreted it as. That's a really w- good way to go into situations because if you're always thinking that someone is bad, then they're evidently going to be bad. You're kind of manifesting that reality. Um, but if you do what you said and you think of people as a blank slate and you don't take personal biases of other people into this into account, um, you basically get your own impression. And I think that's a good way to think. But also sometimes people can be right when they warn you against someone. So I don't know. It's kind of like weighing it both yeah, ways. Yeah, best of both worlds. I mean, yeah, you just kind of got to like take the good or the bad. You know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could miss out on like a great friendship by like having like one person that like you're kind of friends with tell you this person's bad. Don't associate with them. Or they could be completely right and they could just be like an awful person. You just be like, well, should have listened. Yeah. It's kind of like figuring out who you want to trust because sometimes your friends really do have your best interests and other times they don't. But most of the time, I feel like friends rather than like people you're acquainted with have better, have your interest in mind. Whereas like other people are like kind of bringing in their own thoughts and altering it. You definitely feel more invested and care more when it's someone that you already know and someone that you have uh, 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 stakes put in with, you know, emotional yeah, stakes, definitely. effort. When there's effort involved, that's like you've like put effort into this relationship. You don't want to like give them false information and just ruin it. Yeah. So. And then there's those friends that are like trying to throw you like a loop and be like, oh, yeah, they're they're amazing. And then you you meet an awful person because they're just trying to give you crap all the time. But <laughs> that's a whole different breed. For sure. Um, I saw my chiropractor this week. You did? How did that go? It went well. Um, he, like, so he's, like, a smaller guy than me. So he had, like, me lay on my side. And when he cracked my back to, like, relieve stress or whatever, he had me, like, put my one of my legs up. And then he had to jump with his whole body and then just, like, push down really hard just to, like, get it to crack. <laughs> Cause oh, my God. <laughs> he's not, like, a big person. He can't just go, like... He has to go like, boom. Oh my gosh, that's so yeah. funny. It was funny. But um, he told me something really interesting, actually. Um, Let me tell you. Did you know that 10 minutes of jump roping is equal uh, cardio-wise to two miles of running? Really? That yeah, is so cool. Not, and I'm not saying like little girls in the playground jump roping and hopscotch. I'm talking like, if you ever seen like a boxer training, like they're like jump roping mm-hmm. really fast, little hops, that kind of yeah. jump roping. But I still thought it was really interesting because you can like weigh them and it's 10 minutes of jump roping or rope for like a 35 minute run, you know? That's so cool. That's really awesome. Makes me kind of want to get jump rope. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I mean, if you're, if you get stuck at home again, like what can you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, but speaking of jump roping uh, and like how boxers train with that, do you know who uh, Mayweather is? Mayweather? No. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you remember when like there was like a big box match a couple years back? It was Conor McGregor versus Mayweather. One of them was like a huge boxer, one of them was like a big heavyweight MMA fighter. No, I don't remember that. I'm not very into boxing, but enlighten uh, me. Well, they had like this huge boxing match and it was like really like everyone was so ready to watch it because they're both like excellent fighters. It's supposed to be really good. And Mayweather ended up winning it, I believe. His current record's like fifty one and 0 or something. It's incredible that he like hasn't lost. 
but he's going to be fighting Logan Paul. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so this undefeated boxer versus Logan Paul, who is 0-1 <laughs> as a boxer. Oh my gosh. Logan's only match, he lost to a guy named KSI. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Yeah, I have heard of him. Yeah, I've heard of KSI. So he's a British YouTuber. Um, he's also a rapper. But um, he did a tenure in boxing uh, and boxed Logan Paul and beat him. But what will be interesting is Mayweather is this, he's an excellent boxer, an excellent technique, all that. But he is like five inches shorter than Logan, has like three inches less of reach, and is like 40 pounds less. Okay, I'm sensing a common theme with your stories today. Very small people, huh? What? Like you talk about how your chiropractor was a small person. Oh yeah, yeah, I guess so. Okay, continue. Sorry. I mean, I he's not really a that. small person. He's like five nine. I don't know. Logan's okay, six, okay. Logan's six three. He's just he's just a tall yeah. guy. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> but um, it'll be in a really interesting fight. I'm kind of excited to see it. I'm pretty sure Mayweather will win just with superior technique and knowledge. But a lot of people, a lot of money is going to be put on the line there. I It'll bet there's fight. so many there's so many bets that are placed with like those matches, and it's basically a lot of the. I know the matches like um, Jake Paul and Logan Paul. A lot of it is for clout and money. So like, for sure. Hey. Like how he just <laughs> dropped Ben Askren in 40 seconds. Oh my god! Ben Askren, and who's 40 years old, which is a bit old, but was an MMA fighter who took some beatings, and then Jake Paul knocked him out in one round. That is sauce. crazy. That is absolutely crazy. Yeah, was... give us the full update when this when this match happens. Like, oh, it won't be for a while, episode. but for sure, no, it will not be my next episode. Not as in, <laughs> when is this fight happening? I like months down the line. I don't know. Months? Let me check. Okay. Mayweather versus Logan Paul. Um, I don't even think it's planned out yet. To be honest with you, Sunday, okay, June sixth. Think... Okay, all right. So when we when we cut when we reconnect in June, I'll write it down. June sixth. We'll, we'll recap. We'll be right like, remember down. that episode back in what month? Remember when you said May? Logan and Mayweather were going to fight? Uh, yeah. How long did it take for Logan to back out and chicken? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, yeah. No, let's hear about it. But speaking of going back to past episodes and answering questions and stuff, I did do some research on my assertion that I made last um, episode about driving at night um, for people who are under 18. And in our state, I will read you what I found. I found what is that? What is it called? Um, the booklet of like the laws of the road. I don't know what it's called. Um, oh, it's like the government governmental like statement. I don't know. So this is what it says: a license issued to a person under the age of eighteen is an intermediate license, which prohibits the license from the following: a carrying passengers other than immediate family members. And then it gives a bunch of options and, like, um, you can have a foreign exchange student, all that. And then it says, B, operating a motor vehicle between the hours of 12 a.m. and 5 a.m. So I'm definitely right here. See, I-, I think you're still looking at, like, them having, like, not their nine months up. No, because, because I'm, I'm looking at this because... thing. I'm looking at the law right now. I'm looking at the BMV licensing in Maine. This is a person under 18 years of age who's been issued a driver's license. They may not operate a motor vehicle while using a mobile cell phone. That's everyone. But it also says they can't carry passengers other than immediate family members unless accompanied by a licensed operator who's held a valid license for two years. Uh-huh. And is at least 20. It's like that means like you and your friends couldn't drive together in Maine. 
Yeah, no, no, no. That's for that's for um your and then it nine says months. Right? Operate a motor vehicle between hours of twelve and five a.m. Yeah. So this is I all under this is all under a person under eighteen years of age who's been issued a driver's license may not. Okay, but that, I found. Sorry, is that so like a sixteen-year-old found... with a license that nine months up can't drive with like a seventeen-year-old? No, that wouldn't be right because that's it depends what this is on saying. Like the... the, no, because this, is this saying, has an issued think... an issued intermediate license prohibits the use of the prohibits the license from the following. Oh wait! Carrying... Oh no, I see. Hold on. You say intermediate license? Let me see this. A person under eighteen years of age who's been issued a driver's license may not. All those things we just said. These restrictions are in fact for. 270 days no where does it for say that passing road tests violation of this of these conditions of these restraints will result in a license suspension <laughs> nine months no i am telling you that's not it because i'm looking that's... at the official bureau of motor vehicles in maine okay i'm checking this because i'm i definitely uh, saw it all i'm saying a person under 18 years of age who's been issued a driver's license may not operate a vehicle while using a mobile telephone, operate a motor vehicle between the hours of 12 and 5 a.m., or carry passengers other than immediate family members for 270 days, which is nine months, which means when your nine months okay, are up, but wait. you can do it. You guys can't see it right now, but I'm, I'm tapping my camera like that TikTok where they go. I can't even see it. Because I'm, okay. I'm looking at this Bureau of Motor Vehicles okay. here. I'm going to teach you something here. Hit Control F and then okay. type in how space do space you space obtain a driver's license. No, I'm on this right now. Are, you're on the page? Yes, I'm on the page and I'm uh, looking at it because it says do you know how to says, scroll? Violation like, of these conditions, of these restrictions will result in a license suspension and a 270-day extension of restrictions may extend beyond the 18th birthday. So that read means the, read that the first part. No, read the first part. These restrictions are in effect for 270 oh, okay. days from passing the road test. Don't just well, skip I the swear. part proving okay, you wrong okay. and then okay. say the violation. You know what? <laughs> you know what? Next, okay, next episode, I'm going to literally get out that book they gave us. Louise is about a clap yellow back. book. And I'm going to prove it to you because I remember my driver's ed instructor, shout out, you know who you are. She would always she bring us candy. Anyway, um, <laughs> she definitely said that you have to like be, uh, when you're um, under 18, you can't talk on the phone and you can't um, drive between the hours of 12 and 5 a.m. So I will I'm, inform I'd you that that's swear. true until your nine months are out. Okay, but I swear it was under 18, like, after nine months, too. Human so, beings can be I'm wrong. Gonna I'm going to check. We're, we're going to continue this conversation. And the saga continue. continues. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, anyway, so for today's episode, we are going to present for you a couple conspiracy theories. Um, it's, a, and then, it's a conspiracy theory, Louisa. Um, so actually online on Oxford Dictionary, a conspiracy theory is designed, defined as a belief that some covert but influential organization is responsible for a circumstance or event. Responsible. It's right, I- an explanation for an event or situation that invokes a conspiracy by sinister and then it's cut off. Okay, okay. So I'm gonna, I'll, I'll tell you guys what a conspiracy theory is in English. Okay, okay. So a conspiracy theory is something where like people don't believe in the moon landing or they think the earth is flat. It's when you have a wide range belief that's known as common knowledge to the mass public and a certain select group of people believe that that's not true and that people are trying to hide the truth from them. So they create a conspiracy theory, a conspiracy being a falsehood that's like 
not really like present it's false but like everyone believes it's real and they're trying to hide it from mass media and such so that's what a conspiracy theory is it's like the earth being flat okay so i feel like mine is less it's not a very the one that i selected is not a very well known one and it's like kind of like (laughs) an alternate explanation for well it was on a list of conspiracy theories so it's like an alternate explanation for a thing are you ready to hear it sure so the conspiracy theory I decided to present to you, Jack, is actually about the movie Frozen. Wait, like 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 the kids Disney movie? Yes. Yeah, I know we've talked about it on a previous episode, but yes, it's about Frozen. What conspiracy theory did you pull out of that? Um, okay, so let's talk about Walt Disney. Let's talk about his image. Um uh-huh. so as you know, <laughs> Disney World is a very like clean image. There's a lot of like clean polished policies. Yeah, exactly. You Um, know that ride where there's a big boat? What? You know the ride that's a big boat around the river? Yeah. Someone died on that. They forgot to untie the rope from the little metal piece on the dock, and then when it left, it just ripped it out of the ground and like with all the suspension force, it just went through someone. Oh, crap. That's really bad. Oh, my God. But we love Disney. Yeah, so Disney has some sus policies, um, but they very, they're very, they work really, really hard to clean up their image. And how hard would they go to clean up their image? So let's, let's think about that. They made a movie called Frozen. And why is it called Frozen? Well, there's very many thoughts about this little piece here. Walt Disney was a cool man, and he wanted to live as long as he could. Um, <laughs> I know where this is going. So um, he may or may not have cryogenically frozen himself to sure preserve. He did. I think we know that. Okay, so like he cryogenically, fr- like actually, he froze like his flo- head. froze his head. It's either his head or his whole body to preserve his life longer so he could live longer, apparently. Um, And every time that someone would search Walt Disney Frozen, like now you would think of, oh, Frozen, the movie, Elsa, Anna, Olaf, all of that. Um, But now, but in the past, when people would search the movie Walt Disney Frozen, it would come up with the image of walt disney cryogenically freezing his head or his body or all of that and as we said like disney is a very family-friendly clean image sort of brand and that's not necessarily a bad thing but they didn't want that sort of image to come for kids so there's a theory that in order to distract from the fact that this actually occurred or this could have occurred we were pretty sure it actually occurred um they created a movie called Frozen in order to cover up that fact. So whenever anyone searches anything Walt Disney Frozen, the movie about Elsa, Anna, Olaf, all those characters comes up Son. on your search history bar instead of presenting um, Walt Disney cryogenically frozen. Um, and Disney has been known to do stuff like this. They they have been known to crop out cigarettes out of Walt Disney's hands um, in certain films. They really promote... Um, I don't know what the purpose for this was, but characters are not allowed to get out of character. They have to sign a contract to stay 
in character even when they're drowning like they're not allowed to take their costume off which seems really messed up when you think about it so is disney really family friendly and clean and all that beautiful image that it appears to be you never know because it tried to cover up the fact that walt disney cryogenically froze his head but now we have the movie frozen um his, as is interesting. That's not where I expected you to take it, and I didn't know what you were going to be able to make a theory out of that. But that is cool. And now Disney does have some very sus practices. Um, I think the Disney Princess program is also like really rigorous. Like the training they have to go through is extensive, and they yeah. have to be in character at all times. And if they make like the slightest mess up or like aren't looking good enough, they can get fired. Oh my it's gosh! Really bad. Yeah. No, I it's very like secretive too because there's actually a girl from my school who works at disney as one of the princesses and she i think she told my teacher who she was but she's not we're not allowed to know nobody is allowed to know in our like state and anywhere like which princess she's playing like any of that because that's like super valuable information or whatever so it's very very secretive huh. and i mean obviously disney has some creepier rides you got it's a small world you ever, it's a you, small ever world. On, you ever been on It's a Small World? Yes, I have. That thing's terrifying. All the dolls. Yeah. Like, those things could just come to life and like rip you apart. You never know. I know. There was know. a book series I read when I was a little kid. And oh my gosh, I don't know if I, I can't not remember what it's called. But it was like about like these horrible things happening at Disney. And um, one of them was like they went to It's a Small World and all the dolls came to life and attacked them. And then there was like another like book where they were in um, Thunder Mountain. And, like, they're getting, like, threatened by, like, the uh, animatronics. Oh, was, dang. I cannot remember what that series was called for life, but it was really good books. Oh, um, wow. But it's crazy, like, what extent Disney would go to to cover up, like, certain things like that to preserve their brand. Like, creating an entire movie to cover <laughs> up a search history, like. I mean, Disney does have some, like, not so great uh past stuff just because like times have changed um they had one movie that was really racially charged from like the 60s really and it was one of those movies where it was like a mix of animated characters and uh, a mix of like real people mm-hmm. and there was like an african-american man in it who was like a former slave and he's like best friends with like an animated bunny i i, I i'm sure a lot of people actually know what i'm talking about because it's it's really kind of it's like well known but not well known if you know what i mean yeah, like a lot of people know about it, but like no one's gonna know what it's called. And that's obviously not okay and not very Disney-like, right? Especially, you know, I think they also had like I'm sure the mouse got used for World War II stuff. Yeah, they did for propaganda. Yeah, probably they all did. I, I guess it's not so much um, Disney that got used for propaganda here, but I know personally, um, uh, 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 Dr. Seuss made political propaganda from world war ii oh yeah no i knew that he has really that. really racist um uh, pictures that he like drew for like newspapers same with looney tunes there's a lot of looney tune sketches that i are just i did know that i did know about that mm-hmm. i'm actually oh. reading a really good book about world war ii i just thought of it it's called um my mother's secret i just started it but shout out book so if y'all read it let me know <laughs> um on the cryogenically frozen bit, though, I do know someone that was cryogenically frozen. Really? And it succeeded. Um, now, I don't know if you could do that with, like, a full human today. 
But what happened was when his mother became pregnant, uh, he was a twin. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, his mother, for other unknown reasons, uh, were, was not able to ha- like give birth to twins. So what they did was they took his embryo and removed it from her and cryogenically froze him for a year while his sister was being like raised and born. And then he was placed oh, back wow. inside and she, he was born a year later. So he has a twin that's a year older. That's so cool. It's like I've heard that really cool. happening with like stem cells and like embryos and stuff, yeah. but I've never heard it like happening, like you said, with an actual fully grown person. Right. It'd be extremely hard to do. Yeah. Um, you would have to do it in like the moments before someone fully died. You have to like suspend them in animation and you have to like fully freeze their brain. And there's a oh, lot of gosh. things I don't really understand with how that would work. Um, I don't know if you know how memories are kept. But memories are just a series of uh, like neutrons and electrons and stuff that are bouncing patterns in your brain. That's why if you think of a certain thing, you can almost smell it or taste it because that's kind of like locked in there with that pattern. Right. So I don't know how like you'd be able to keep those like patterns like locked in if it was all frozen. I don't know. It's a it's really complicated. That's why we yeah, it's haven't been able to do it. <laughs> well, obviously, like it didn't work for Walt Disney because he's not alive. Obviously, well, maybe he, I don't know. I don't know, maybe it would have worked, but it obviously didn't. Hundreds of years. Yeah, it'll take a lot of technology. Yeah. Um, So for my conspiracy theory, mine's not as Disney related. Okay. (laughs) As much as it's um, crime related. And mine is called The Search for D.B. Cooper. You ever heard of that? D.B. Cooper. No, I haven't. Okay. Let's take us back. It's Thanksgiving Eve. November 24th, 1971, a middle-aged man carrying a black uh, briefcase approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. He identified himself as Dan Cooper and used cash to purchase a one-way ticket on flight 305, a 30-minute trip to Seattle. He was wearing loafers and had a business suit on. Now, everything I say here, it's going to come back, so it's going to matter. The flight was a Boeing 727-100. The plane was one-third full, and shortly after takeoff, he handed a flight attendant a little note. Um, she assumed that he was just like a lonely businessman and that it was his phone number, so he just dropped the she dropped the note into her purse, not giving a second thought. And then as she walked away, he tapped on her shoulder and he said, I think you want to read that note. I have a bomb. So oh, my gosh. She, she pulled the note back over, and in what has been described as neat all capital letters from a felt tip pen it said i have a bomb i want you to sit right next to me and follow my demands now this is what we this is what it's think to have been said because as you can assume miss schaffner was in a bit of a panic and also he actually took the note back and it was never reclaimed um so she sat next to him and she was like Proved to me that you have a bomb. He opened his briefcase, and inside she saw eight red cylinders. Now, she was never actually able to confirm what those cylinders may have been, but they looked very similar to dynamite sticks at the least. He stated his demands of $200,000 in quote-unquote negotiable American currency. And what that kind of meant was, like, the numbers had to all be random. It had to be different. It couldn't have been, like, you know, like standard-issue ink money that they could just give to him, right? It had to be negotiable. He could use it for other things. He demanded okay. four parachutes, two primary and two reserve. So four parachutes, not just like one for himself. And a fuel truck to be standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon revival, arrival. Uh, after conveying this, after she went left and conveyed this to the pilot, 
he came back and he had black sunglasses on, so she could no longer see his eyes. He's um, the pilot's in on this. Nah. <laughs> okay, continue. So negotiable, meaning the money couldn't be fake. And the reason he asked for four parachutes. I want. Why do you think he wanted four parachutes? For some other people involved in the instance. Well, no, but it's an ingenious plan on his own part. By asking for four parachutes and providing no other information, he has now trapped the cops in a way where he could take hostages. So they can't oh. give him. So they can't give him a trapped parachute, because they could give him a faulty one and he would just die, and then they'd recover all the money and like kill the terrorist. But by requesting for four, he could take hostages, meaning they couldn't give him faulty uh, air parachutes. So they would die too. Right. So they had to give him real oh, ones. Oh gosh. So um, he he demanded them to to wait before they landed, so they could get all this stuff ready, and they. He didn't reveal to anyone else on the plane that there was something bad going on. So the flight crew told all the passengers that there was just like a little bit of trouble and it was going to take them a while to land. So they circled the Puget Sound for about two hours to allow everything to be gathered. And it was actually said that the money was really easy to gather and it was the parachutes that were tough. Because they, who has parachutes? Yeah, where are you going to find a parachute? (laughs) They had to go to like a Seattle flight school um, and get like their skydiving equipment. So Cooper appeared to be familiar with the local terrain. At one point, he remarked, it looks like Tacoma down there, as it was, as they were flying over Tacoma. And he also mentioned that McCord Air Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Uh, Mucklau, another flight um, uh, uh, attendant, reported that he wasn't nervous. He seemed nice and was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. He ordered a second bourbon and soda because he ordered a bourbon and soda when he boarded the plane and paid his drink tab and even attempted to give her the change as like, uh, hey, here's my extra change. And then he offered to even request meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle from the police. So he was really casual about this. He was really nice. You know, he wasn't like an aggressive mm-hmm. guy. Um, they brought him four airports, two military issue and two standard issue. And he actually rejected the military parachutes offered by the McCord Air Force Base and said demanding civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords. And what's interesting about this is these were the, t- the, the civilian ones are the kind used back in the Korean Wars and Vietnam Wars, unlike the modern military ones. So Seattle obtained these from a local skydiving school and gave it to him. They gave him 10,000 unmarked $20 bills weighing about 21 pounds. He demanded not too many small bills because it would be too heavy to jump with. Well, too many, not too many big bills because it's harder to liquidate. So it was really thought out. The plane landed in Seattle at 5:20 p.m. He instructed the pilot to take the taxi to jet to, to taxi the jet to an isolated, briefly lit um, area of the tarmac, and close all the window shades in the cabin to deter police snipers. Like, Wouldn't he, that he's... be noticeable if he's going to a different place where he's supposed to land, for like the plane flight? No, this is where we're supposed to land. But like, if he's going to a different place on the tarmac, like, wouldn't it wouldn't it be catching eyes? Why does it matter if it catches eyes? He's made requests from the police and FBI. They have to bring him the stuff anyway. Okay, like the, continue, like the, continue. Like the, the police know he's going to be there, like, and he knows that too. They're the ones that have to bring him the money. He has the hostages. He has the power. All right. So <clears throat> when they land, uh, a guy brought him the stuff. And then he went back, and at 5.24, uh, four minutes after landing, all the passengers are released from the plane. 
two of the co-pilots are released from the plane and all the flight attendants except for one. So now it's just him, the pilot, a flight attendant, and a flight engineer. So he's released the majority of the hostages. And then this is where I think it's kind of interesting. That's four goes, people, four parachutes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> he goes to the pilot and he's like, this is what I want, okay? I want you to go to the minimum airspeed without stalling the aircraft approximately 100 knots, 100, 150 miles per hour at a maximum 10,000 foot, 3,000 miles altitude. 3,000 meters, sorry. He further specified that the landing gear had to be remained deployed in takeoff landing position throughout the entire flight. So that, that means like the wheels had to be up the whole time. He wanted the wing flaps to be lowered to a 15 degrees and the cabin to remain unpressurized. So these are like very specific flight demands. Yeah. He has a lot of demands here. Yeah. Um, the, the pilot was like, listen, like going that slow, we're not going to be able to make it to Mexico City where he wanted to land with this much fuel. So he agreed on landing in Reno, Nevada as a refueling stop. So he wants them to fly really slow, like 150 miles per hour. That's not a lot for a plane. Mm-hmm. A car can go that. You know, usually your jets are going like 700 miles per hour. I don't know. Really fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at 740, they retook off with... Again, Cooper, the pilot, one flight attendant, and one flight engineer. But as soon as the flight began, he ordered that everyone lock themselves in the cockpit for the rest of the ride. At 8.13, the plane feels like it hits some turbulence, which takes the uh, pilot like some time to recover. When they land at 10.15 and leave the cockpit, Cooper's no longer on the plane. Two parachutes are also now gone. He jumped out. From where, yeah. though? They think the turbulence they felt at eight at eight thirteen was him jumping out of the plane. So Cooper, oh, at some point between Washington, Seattle, and Reno, Nevada, has jumped out of the plane with the money, with two parachutes. And they think he secured the money with one parachute and then used the other for himself. But now, all the okay, so all the other people are off the plane. All the ri- original squad is off the plane, right? Uh, it's the original pilot and the original like flight attendant and the original engineer. But he like right, all the but like off. all the passengers and everybody else is out. Yes, yeah, so ever everyone else is gone. So they got they kind of got out free, or did they? Yeah, he like well, like that was like his trade. He like he gave them all the hostages except for like four and trade for like the money and all that. Oh, gotcha. And then okay, he that just makes sense. Disa- he just disappeared somewhere over the Rockies. What so the heck? At 8.13, uh, flight flight engineers were like, you were probably over Mount St. Helens. You were over this lake. This is where like, the area we think he is. And the pilot was like, no, because I had to use manual control and flight by these limits. I was more over here. And they're like, no, you're wrong. You're the pilot, but we don't care. We're going to look here. <laughs> Not where you think you were. And he's like, okay. Um, and another interesting thing to note is that he took the two civilian parachutes. He didn't take the military ones. But what they realized after the fact is one of the parachutes he took, they accidentally gave him a dummy parachute. So oh. it's ripped apart, wouldn't work. So he did take the dummy parachute, but he took two parachutes. Um. <clears throat> Right after this happened, they knew he had identified himself as Dan Cooper. They interviewed a local man who was named D.B. Cooper to see, like, oh, like, where were you when this happened? What's up with you? And they immediately ruled him instant, innocent. Like, he was fine. He wasn't involved. They knew that. But by this point, 
the media had latched onto the name D.B. Cooper. And so began, like, the search for D.B. Cooper. Like, he never identified himself as D.B. Cooper. And no one on the plane thought of him as D.B. Cooper. It was Dan Cooper. But everyone in the country thinks it's D.B. Cooper because that's the name the media ran with. This is, is this real? Yeah, this is all real. Oh, so, my gosh. I didn't know that. But did you think I was just making it up? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't actually know this is a real thing. Oh, my gosh. Okay. What did you think? <laughs> what? I don't know. I thought it was fake. <laughs> I thought it was just a story. No. Oh, wow. Okay, so they this the man is clearly not innocent. No, DB Cooper's innocent. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's not him. He, he's 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 innocent. But that's the name the media took. Why do you think he was clearly not innocent? I don't know. Because <laughs> he's the only one with the other name. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's an alias. Yeah, exactly. We'll get to that later. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, they start to look for him by Mount St. Helens. So remember, this happened in November 1991. They begin to look in the spring thaw of 1972. Teams of FBI soldiers and 200 Army checked out the area with a submarine for the nearby lake as well to see if it could fall in the lake and dive. Zero evidence was found. The only evidence that they've ever really found was eight years later. And this is what they found. Eight years later, a ten-year, I know, an eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River on a beachfront known as Tanabar. It was nine miles downstream from Vancouver, twenty miles southwest of Ariel. Ariel is where they thought they were above when he jumped. So this is close. This kid, buried in the sand on the beach of a river, finds three packets of a ransom cash that had been raked into the sand. So it's definitely that cash. It's definitely yeah, that cash. No, like they, they like checked the codes to it and like it was it was money from DB Cooper. And it was two packets of a hundred dollar bills and a third packet that only had ninety of the twenty dollar bills. So it was fifty eight hundred dollars. Yeah, so he got got away with some of the money. Well he got away with like hundred ninety five thousand dollars. But the question yeah. is, why were these three packets buried in a beach down the twenty miles down the river from where he jumped? How much were they buried? Like were they well buried? They're, they're pretty good buried. This was eight years later as well. Like they, they had to have been buried because the rubber bands had not decayed. So he want he either wanted someone to find them or he wanted to come back and claim that money later. It's possible, but it's only five thousand out of the two hundred thousand. Like why would he have buried that if yeah, he was why would have to he, yeah. later? Hmm. So this also proved that the original search shown was incorrect because this river came from the lake that the pilot said, I think I flew this way, and they're like, Nah, you flew that way. It was the pilot that was right. So we don't really know why they didn't trust him. But um, they, again, they disclosed that they'd given him the dummy parachute. And this made them think that maybe he wasn't as good with parachutes because it was kind of clear that it was a dummy. It was, like, stitched shut. And apparently he cannibalized the uh, the one of the military uh, rare, uh, parachutes. Like, they like he, like, ripped it apart. And I think he did that to, like, tie the money bag shut. So another thing to remember, he's in, like, Washington, right? In November. It's winter. There's snow everywhere. He had loafers and a suit on. He did not jump in clothing to, like, last the winter. He also jumped uh, 175 miles per hour in the rain. So he didn't jump in good conditions. That's a key thing. Um, no. Evidence that they have is that he appeared to be familiar with the Seattle area. He knew he, they think he might have been an Air Force veteran because he did know the area. He, like, knew, like, there was an Air Force base nearby. 
um, he chose a 727-100 Boeing aircraft because it was ideal for a bailout escape, owing not only to its aft air stair, which, but also to the high afterward placement of all three engines, which allowed a reasonably safe jump, despite the proximity of the engine exhaust. It also had a single fueling point, so they only had to like put in the fuel in like one point. So it was really safe for him to use. Um, it also had the ability, unusual for like the majority of commercial jet airliners at the time, to remain in slow low altitude flight without stalling. So he also knew the plane he was picking. And they also think that it's possible that if he did survive and just went back, there was no missing report, missing people's reports during that time. And he did jump again Thanksgiving Eve. It was a four-day weekend that year, so he had time to like get back to wherever he was going. Um, and that kind of brings us to some of our suspects here, because that we have suspects. There's people that it could be, and I want you to try to make your guessment of who you think. Really? Okay. Kenneth Peter Christensen was reported by his brother after watching a documentary. Christensen was enlisted in the army in 1944 and was trained as a paratrooper. The war had ended by the time he was deployed in 1945, but he made occasional training jumps while stationed in Japan with occupation forces in the late 1940s. After leaving the army, he joined Northwest Orient, Orient which is an air flight, airport place, in 1954 as a mechanic in the South Pacific and subsequently became a flight attendant and then a purser based in Seattle. He was shorter than the description, but the right age, 45, is the description of uh, our D.B. Cooper. He was also a fan of bourbons, which D.B. Cooper had ordered two of during the flight, and he bought a house months after the hijacking. Okay, when so he money. Passed, when he passed away in 1994 from uh, lung cancer, gold coins were found in his house along with $200,000 in his bank account. Okay, sus. Sus. That's the amount of money that was stolen. Lynn Doyle Cooper was a Korean war vet, and the day of the hijacking came home with a bloody shirt that he claimed was from a car accident he got into. Okay, faulty parachute. He'd been acting sus with, quote-unquote, what he told his uh, niece, walkie-talkies, the weeks before. And also was a really close match to the description and had the name Lynn Doyle Cooper. William Gossett was in the Marine Corps and an Air Force veteran who saw action in Vietnam. He had advanced dra- training and was notably obsessed with the hijacking. He was all, following all the reports and listening to everything about it. And he also, um, uh, like 10 years after the hijacking, in a drunken stupor, told family members that it had been him. He resembled the drawings and was strapped for cash during the time of around 71. So he would, he, wait, he confessed to this? Yeah, but like... I didn't. I didn't write them all, but like ten people confessed to this. There's a lot of people that claim to have done it because they wanted the fame. They want to be jailed. Wait, why would they, they want can't... the fame? People just said they, they okay. did this. Okay. <laughs> Richard McCoy was an army veteran who served two doors of duty in Vietnam. Was an avid recreational skydiver, and three years after this, uh, uh, after the hijacking, he boarded United Flights Airlines Flight 855, another Boeing 727 with aft stairs. In Denver, Colorado, brandishing what later proved to be a paperweight resembling a hand grenade and an unloaded handgun. He demanded four parachutes and $500,000 and pulled off a copycat um, hijacking, but was later found six months later because his handwriting on the note uh, led them to him. So he did another very similar hijacking as well. Could it have been a copycat or could it have been him going for, back for more money? I feel like that's a copycat. You aren't you aren't going to complete the same exact crime that you did before. 
like you need to do something a little bit different because that sounds very similar it was very similar it was like it was almost the exact same yeah but that also shows that he had it down to a t he knew what he was doing but he so, got caught right yeah so so was it? again nobody was ever found the only evidence they ever found was eight years later when they found that money in the riverbank and uh db cooper has never been found he escaped with two hundred thousand dollars again this was in the 70s it would probably be a couple million today and uh that is the story of the search for db cooper wow okay so my first question was you said was this guy american do we know that uh yeah uh the description of him was a 45 year old caucasian male with kind of greasy hair and um uh, he was about five eight Okay, so I don't think, like, you said that there was, like, a couple, did you say, like, Vietnamese, like, war people? Vietnam War vets. Okay, so they were American. Yeah, they were all American. They were just Vietnam War vets. Right. So, it could have been them, because they're going to have experience from, like, war training and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think it's the copycat one. I think it's one of the first few that you said. Okay, so you think it is one of the people at least? I think it could be. I think um, that it's very possible that they were identified just because they wanted to pin it on someone. But I think it's, I think that they, the person who actually did it probably wouldn't want to get found out. Um, and so they probably would not have the same name. And a lot of the ones you described have the same last name of Cooper. And I don't think. Them, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but, like, I don't think that they would want – I don't think that someone with the same name would necessarily, like – I feel like that's too obvious, you know? Right. I was, I'm going to send you this right now. This is Richard McCoy. He is the one who pulled off the copycat, and this is the drawing description of D.B. Cooper. With the gloss. Okay, that is pretty glasses. dang – it is similar. How did who is who is the drawing description from? Uh, it was from two separate flight flight attendants that gave very accurate and similar drawings. So the flight attendants were 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 the flight attendants the ones that got dismissed from the plane, or were they the ones that were staying on? Because there was one still on. The one, that's, was... one the one that stayed on was the one that originally sat with him and did give the the description mainly used. Okay, I mean, that's pretty dang close. Right. Yeah, so I don't know. There's it's other people that also look similar. Yeah. Dang, I think the entire time you were telling the story, I thought it was fake. I didn't know this was a <laughs> real thing. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> why, why would it be fake? I don't know. I just <laughs> thought it was fake. What's the point of a conspiracy theory if it's not true? Oh my gosh. That's so terrifying, though. Can you imagine? Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm surprised that he let all those people go, even though he was getting his money. Like, usually. Well, I mean, again, like, he was a very peaceful man. He was very kind. He offered to tell the police to bring meals for the flight crew. He, he wasn't yeah, like a man, not, like, not your typical to... terrorist. Right. He wasn't like insinuating terror. He was just trying to get some money. Very different. Wow. Well, that, that's, a, that's a handful to think about. Yeah. The search for D.B. Cooper, a man D. who is never found. Could be alive today. Probably not actually, but dang. Yeah, you said I 1969? Mean, it was 71. 71? 
Yeah, and he looked to be about 45 and 71. So that's about 50 years ago. If he was alive today, he'd probably be in his 90s. Hey. There's a good chance he's passed away. Guys, watch out for your grandparents. <laughs> your, grandparents <laughs> a... <laughs> your grandparents probably won't be named Dan Cooper, though, because Dan Cooper uh, was a paratrooper from a Canadian comic book. And that's thought that could be where he came up with the alias. Oh, yeah. Wow. This is, like, yeah. so cool to think about because it could be, like, a totally different avenue that you weren't even, like, going exactly. down. There's just so many things that it could have been. There's a lot of options. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Well, now my brain's, like, exploding because I'm like, now I want to <laughs> know who it is. I need to figure this out. I mean, <laughs> you could be the one, I guess. <laughs> You I could, could be the one. one. Should I devote the rest of my life to figuring out who this guy check, was? You should check every single dollar bill you ever get and see if it matches um, the serial numbers of his money. They say if you find uh, any any money associated with him, you can get $25,000. Really? Who do you turn it into? Probably the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh, calls the S- FBI. Hey, um, I'm pretty sure it's uh, a bill of the serial number of D.B. Cooper. Um, can you please, like, give me my money? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks, and bye. See, again, it's going to be ingrained in your mind forever of D.B. Cooper, right? D.B. Cooper, yeah. Because yeah, he, remember, he, he never went by D.B. Cooper. It was Dan Cooper. It was just the media that portrayed him as D.B. Cooper. And that is the role of the media, kids. Let's yeah, change see? up a name like louisa heard the story for five minutes and like she's already lost the fact that his name it's was never even dan- cooper it's just well, got, dan it's cooper, just got, right it was yeah, dan exactly cooper. it got ingrained in your mind so fast though yeah no happens. i no, i how, knew like, it though i didn't that's forget how misinformation it. spreads <laughs> yeah well oh. that's the media for you like they try to spread misinformation oh yeah i mean there's a ton of really crazy conspiracy theories out there like or surrounding like malaysian airlines that like, fight like 301 and jfk's assassination i mean i don't know we got some future conspiracy episodes if, if people yeah are. this one was very in-depth i think like i think it's cool to hear you talk about it because i have not investigated a ton of conspiracy theories so i think like hearing this super in-depth one is definitely making me think and question a lot but <laughs> hey no i'll make good. you question the moon landing i actually think i would want to hear about that because my mom was born on the day of the moon landing, like year, day, exact moment. So I will, I will ruin your mother's birth. Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah. No, I definitely want to hear about that. Uh, soon in the future, then. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Well, um, everyone, keep looking into conspiracy theories. Don't conform. Be a free thinker. But uh, make sure you stay on the honor roll while you do that. Stay on the honor roll. And for those of you seniors who are almost done, don't slack. Stay on that honor roll. Yes. Have a good night, everyone.